Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome to January's Payroll Question Time. I'll take this opportunity from the whole panel to say Happy New Year. Welcome to the first PQT of 2022. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and some good New Year celebration. Today's discussion points are going to be a furlough recap. Hopefully the last time we're probably discussing this issue uh, for a little while. What you need to know for 2022, the State Retirement Age Review, statutory sick pay, to pay or not to pay, and we're talking there, of course, about the additional holiday pay for the Jubilee Bank holiday, and the great resignation, something that's definitely impacting the work that I do, and I'm sure it's impacting all of you as well. Now, actually, before we jump into our first subject, Andy, your request for pensions questions has already been answered. Let's start with this just before we jump in then, which is, very quickly, from Emma Braunton, any update on the 22-23 pension banded earnings thresholds? And the reason I'm asking that is I know you asked them if there was any update just before the call. So it's well-timed, Emma. Uh, over to you, Andy. Not yet, no. We're just waiting on DWP to tell us. As soon as I find out, I will let the payroll industry know, and, and that will then percolate its way down. So any day now, though, any day now, because it is essential to get that into payroll systems, so testing can be done in readiness and software shipped in time for the new tax year. I was going to say, is that commitment still before Christmas then, uh, Andy? I winked. I'll put my yeah. tongue in my cheek. Before Christmas 2022. <laughs> Second we question. I'm going to pause on that question, Noel, just for okay. a moment. We'll come back to your question. Sorry, Andy. Yeah, no, I'll just, yeah, we, as, soon as, I, as soon as I find out, I'll let everyone know. Super. Well, let's jump into the furlough recap. The House of Commons Library has actually recently published a statistical report on the, uh, the coronavirus job retention scheme, which if you haven't seen it, uh, it's well worth having a look. I'll put a quick link in the notes in just a moment so you can access that directly. It, it did, of course, end on the 30th of September, and its results have had some really interesting statistics and facts published. Some of those you can see in bullet point form there. Uh, at the end of the scheme, um, 1.1 six million jobs were on furlough, uh, which were four percent of eligible jobs. But I'm going to let the panel talk to you about some of these other statistics. So uh, let's start with yourself, Simon. Talk us through some of the findings uh, from that report. And while you're doing that, I'm going to pop the actual link to this report in the chat notes if anyone wants to follow it as we go. Well, I guess similar to the slide probably shows and illustrates there. So we know that 11.7 million jobs have been supported through CJRS for 1.3 million employers. So that's quite a significant amount if we think there's only 1.6 million employers in the UK. So uh, quite impactful. Um, I guess there was a fear of mass uh, redundancy at the beginning of furlough. Uh, and uh, job loss, and we're in a position where actually there's more people employed than there were before the pandemic started. And it's interesting times and, and points, and they do a good little diagram. I guess we've not got the ability to show that, but you'll see it in the report that uh, highlights the points of when uh, furlough hit and how it uh, rose and and uh, declined. So most of the restrictions that were causing furlough to take place actually were lifted on the 19th of July 2021, and we had that tail period going forward of uh, people still being in furlough with it slowly drifting until its end point. The interesting aspect will probably be is what will happen over the next little while when they actually take a look at what people have claimed for and whether they should have done. 
because on social media and places like that, I'm sure Lou's aware, I think she's around there much in the same discussions, is when we're getting people asking the question of, um, well, I was on furlough last year, but I had to work one day a week and uh, uh, I only got 8 cents to pay regardless, and I did my this training this and training that. Um, was that okay? And um, uh, at that point, I think, Lou, we go something like that, don't we, and slap our head and think, what is going on? But uh, interesting times. But uh, seen as a great success by the UK government, so they would say, in uh, protecting UK employment. And I think one thing that we'd all have to be mindful of is that there is now a dedicated task force of over 1,200 staff that have been launched to investigate. And some of the reports on the media are 23,000 cases of fraudulent COVID claims. And I think that's what we have to remember. I mean, what Simon has said about the social media questions and responses is that we do have to have evidence of the claims that we put in and be able to support it with back. Um, information, which we've talked about over the last 18 months, document everything and save it, because HMRC does have the power to ask questions, and it's up to the employer to, to display and to prove why they made the claim and the backup to it. It's worth adding as well that 21 percent, I'm just going to go over some of the stats again, of employers had at least one member mm. of staff on furlough, and the wholesale and retail sectors were the ones that were most supported by the CGRS, uh, with 2.25 million jobs put on furlough during the lifetime of the scheme, which just gives you a bit of an idea of just how uh, how significant it was and how broad it was as well in terms of how it was used. We are getting flooded with some questions, so I know we've got a lot to get through today, so if you don't mind, Pam, I'd like to just get through some of these now, because I'm sure there's going to be more coming through. They're not necessarily relevant to furlough, but they're very relevant to payroll, and it's good to get these off our chest. So please do keep these coming in. This is what the PQT is all about. So the first one comes in from Noel Cowell, which says, I've just been informed of future Carly scheme to be implemented. Uh, gross deduction from salary and tax implications. Is this a reportable item as well? And can you advise how this, these should be processed? It depends what's being referred to, but certainly I think we can give an element of there. So this is a electric car scheme, is it, Nick, was from the question? It doesn't say, it says future car lease scheme. I would assume it, it would be based on what the government's trying to achieve, but it does, doesn't actually say. It just says future car lease scheme to be implemented. Noel, if yes. you can clarify if that's an electric scheme, that'd be really useful. There are implications we've got to consider because actually uh, electric cars were uh, tax-free for a period of time, but they no longer are. So there's a 1% rising to 2% tax liability, and they are reportable. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I've had another question here for maybe uh, you can help with this one, Lou. Has the self-certified fit note been extended from seven to 28 days? It has been, yes. And it was extended up to, was it the 26th of January? The 26th of January, okay. you're allowed to have a 28-day self-cert if you're reporting that you have COVID. It's to help with um, doctors and GPs, so they don't have to supply that. Fantastic. Thanks for answering that. And then we have one here from Salik. How should the health... Actually, I'm going to pause that uh, question, Salik, because we've got a section dedicated to health and social care levy, so I'll do the pause that question so we get to that area of the uh, PQT, if that's OK. But while we're on furlough, we do have a furlough question coming in from Riffat, which says, as furlough has ended in September, can I send any revised payments to HMRC if figures have gone through incorrectly? Are you wanting to repay overpayments? If so, then uh, potentially you can. 
uh, and the, the revenue will gladly receive the money. If you're wanting to claim more money, I think you'll find the doors closed and they won't be too interested, to be honest. Uh, I don't know if Lou's got a different view there, but uh, your claim period for past periods is gone. But if you've overpaid, they'd be quite happy to receive an honesty payment. Excellent. Well, I will um, just re-emphasise the link to this full report is in the chat notes. Do take a look at that. It's pretty comprehensive. It's a really interesting read. I have to say, you know, the payroll industry has been fantastic during this furlough period, trying to get all these calculations made and, uh, and getting everything done. It's been a really trying time. So well done to all of you. As I said, 11.7 million jobs supported by the scheme. And that just gives you an indication of the impact it's had on the payroll industry uh, across the UK. So a huge well done. Hopefully, we won't be going back to the furlough scheme for some time, assuming we're on the right side now of this uh, pandemic, certainly from a, a business perspective, if nothing else. Uh, but we're going to jump in then to the, uh, a key subject as we go into the new year, which is what you need to know in 2022. Now, I'm going to start this with a question because it's come in and it relates to the health and social care levy. Um, so I think it's a great place to start. Comes in uh, from Salik and it says, how should the health and social care levy uh, slash national insurance in increase appear on the payslip? Which links exactly to our first question, which is the payslip message. Yeah, sure. And we, we could debate and talk about this a long time, I think. And if, uh, um, unfortunately, Sam's been unable to join us today because of uh, illness. But uh, there is an instruction to employers uh, to, I'll say, pretty please put on the payslip the following message, which is... 1.25 percentage sign uplift in NICs, little s funds, NHS, comma, health and social care. That's the instructed message. Now, the challenge area is, uh, well, and I'll also say in an honesty works solutions. That's why 961, put the number of periods you want it to cover, which for a monthly would be 12, and against Y, 962 and 963, uh, put the message in in the script, and that will just sit there and produce for the remainder of the year and automatically switch off. That's how it's handled here. However, it is voluntary. Not all employers may want to produce it, and uh, it's speculated a little bit in social discussions that we see uh, about the fact that some view it as a political message. Also, at uh, the other angle, and who may be able to share some information there as well, is uh, the health and social care levy funding of 1.25% is for England. The allocation of money will be given to the devolved governments, but it's for the devolved governments to decide what to do with the allocation of money. So it might not fund... NHS and health and social care in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And uh, that's where I kind of bounce off a nick to that way, if I don't know if everybody sees the same yeah, way I see it. Way. But uh, to Lou, to think, what's, what's your experience, Lou, uh, being uh, within the United Kingdom, but not in England? Well, Northern Ireland can be quite slow and behind with implementing new rules and regulations. Um, for example, um, Northern Ireland haven't introduced the shared parental bereavement leave yet. That's still going through um, Stormont. So there is no update from a Northern Ireland point of view. But what I would say is, as my clients are across the globe and UK companies base, 
biased. We are leaving it up to our clients to decide whether they want that message as it is purely guidance and it is up to individuals, companies, what they want to do about that message on that payslip. Fantastic. And you may have just seen me. John Keeble has now joined us. Welcome, John, to the PQT. I've given you a little introduction on your behalf. and You've joined us just in time. We're shortly going to be discussing the uh, Supreme Court judgment on the gender-neutral passport, so your timing is impeccable. But glad you could, uh, you could join us. Before we get there, though, um, I actually asked Simon off-air before we got to this subject of what on earth fussed meant, and he said it's not just fuzzed, Nick, it's fizzle and fussed. So over to you, Simon, to explain what fizzle and fussed is uh, and what we, why we need to know about it in 2022. Okay, so uh, new national insurance changes are coming in in relation to free ports. So if you're a free port employer and your employees work at least 60% of their time within the free port area, which is a new sort of tax-free zone for uh, international trade to allow goods to come into the UK, to be taken off a ship, potentially, or an aircraft, and potentially then shipped on to another country without it incurring UK uh, liabilities for import tax. So these free ports uh, are to encourage trade, have been like Hong Kong or Rotterdam or other places around the world, and uh, in create employment for UK employees. So employers who uh, recruit and retain staff in the free ports area can have for a period of time a limited employer national insurance liability. And the NI letters for it are F. I, S, and L. So fizzle, that's the fizzle part. Um, but what it also means is it's the employer's liability only kicks in when earnings are above £25,000. So it brings a new upper secondary threshold into play called the Freeport upper secondary threshold. So fizzle and fust. Uh, the challenge with the FUST is that some of the uh, specifications issued to software developers of payroll is that the FUST appears in the calculation of all national insurance, whether you're in a free port or not. And there's a little bit of uh, disturbance there because that means that, in theory, the manual calculations have all changed for everybody to actually have to insert a FUST value to calculate national insurance for people who aren't in a free port area. Um, and there's an element of why and what for and what who would do that. And uh, so it's an element uh, going through. I think ICOR have issued a letter to the HRC to question why. Why is this happening? Because this changes manual calculation training, what you do with manual calculations. Software-wise, it's not really a bother potentially because the software would just do it. But if you have to figure out why something's happened or you're doing manual or training or education, then you've got this fast value inserted right into the middle of a national insurance calculation for people who have got nothing to do with Freeport. Well, sounds like a lot of fuss to me, Simon, if I'm honest, but uh, yes. there we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the one thing that I always look out for um, when it comes to the, the new tax years coming through in 2022 is the thresholds. They always seem to change. So, uh, Lou and Simon, can you talk us through the new thresholds for 2022? Well, we know most things. So we know the uh, income tax for England and Northern Ireland. We know the income tax potential for Scotland as has been announced. We know that uh, Wales are still not doing their own thing, that they've retained the 10% uh, 
basis for themselves as is, so it will mirror the tax for England and Northern Ireland. But Scotland have changed it slightly. Uh, we know the national insurance rates, so national insurance lower earnings limit has uplifted by £3 per week. So we know that that's impacted the statutory payments, uh, etc. I need to leave you something, uh, Lou, that you want to cover from well, covering them all. <laughs> I think you covered it all, to be fair. I mean, all I can add to that is that the Scottish government had increased it by the CPI inflation rate of 31%, and that's why they had a slightly different different rate. Yeah. Um, personal allowance yeah. is going to stay at 12570, and a Apart from that, there's, there is nothing else to go over. It's just, yeah. I know it's not applicable to 22-23, but it's also the fact that HMRC web chat paused, and it was paused from January for three months, that you can't have online chat with HMRC as they review and assess improvements to that system. And I know that that can impact payrollers on a day-to-day the ease of being able to have an online chat conversation and to be able to save that down. Um, I think it was announced, but I don't think it was put out there enough in the lead-up to it, and it just sort of hit us. So we've got some things outstanding still, Nick, if I just cover those. And those the things that are outstanding are Plan 2 threshold for student loan collection and postgraduate loans and pensions automatic enrolment thresholds. Those things we don't know. Pretty much everything else we do. Excellent. Fantastic. I've had another question come in, which I think relates back to what you were saying a moment ago on the um, electric cars. So it comes in from Valerie. It says, following on from the electric car scheme question, when was the 1% uh, slash 2% introduced? The 1% was introduced from April 2021. The 2% is introduced from April 2022. So there is a tax liability on electric vehicles now. Okay, so good question to ask. And for those that aren't familiar with that, then there's still time to make those adjustments, which is good. Yeah, I think I've got the right way around. I might uh, come back and say, actually, it's uh, 22 and 23. But uh, I'll go and have a quick look up just to make sure I'm right, Nick. Super, super. Uh, The impact of national minimum wage rises on the alabaster discussion. We talked a little bit about alabaster in a couple of the previous uh, PQTs, and it's always a topic of hot discussion in the payroll community. So who would like to talk about the impact of national minimum wage rises on the alabaster discussion? Uh, Shall I start with you, Lou? I don't like alabaster ruling, I have to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) I just know that the alabaster ruling relates to if somebody gets a pay rise within their maternity pay, and you have to remember to backdate it. If there's a pay rise, a pay increase, or as somebody was horrified to know a few months ago, um, they'd been paid, they were going to get a backdated bonus. So then we had to go and rework out the statutory maternity pay to cover the bonus payment. In relation to national minimum wage, I'm sorry, I can't think. The impact of national minimum wage was uh, confirmed by the statutory payments consultation group back in about November 2019. But a rise in NMW rate is a pay rise and therefore triggers the alabaster rule. Now, the pay rises to NMW this year are significant, so they're fairly high. So that potentially means, especially for those that are paid at or around NMW, their SMP calculations all need to be revisited, and you may need to top up because they've had a significant rise this year. So, and that would go back almost a year. So you have to look back 
the maternity pay um, or maternity periods that started back to the 1st of April uh, 20. Well, it's 15 weeks before, isn't it? So it's 15, uh, 15 weeks before. Well, actually, it's not. It's 15 plus eight. So 23 weeks before the maternity period started, which could be up to the 1st of April 2020. But you have to say, oh, what's their new salary based on the averaging? I need to uplift that and top up the six weeks higher rate or potentially top up the lower rate if the 90 percent was lower than the uh, standard rate threshold. Does that really confuse everyone? I think that's why, uh, Lou, uh, we tend to hate this sort of thing. But I, there's an of, I did a good job. I couldn't. I, I just as mind-blowing, really, interestingly. Well, paywall's complicated. Sure. That's why we've got a paywall question time. Anyone who thinks that it's easy needs to come and join one of these webinars. You know, bring your HR colleagues on, I think, for the next one and just let them sit through it and might get a better understanding about what this is all about. So, another area that has been of interest, as you mentioned, is the Supreme Court judgment just before Christmas on, gen on the gender-neutral passports, a topic that occasionally arises regarding payroll and HMRC requirements as well, uh, especially in relation to, the, uh, to being male or female only. Yeah, so there was a judgment just before Christmas, uh, about a week and a week to 10 days before Christmas, on the gender-neutral X passport case. So it was uh, on the application of female and Kane appealants versus Secretary of State for the Home Department respondent. Um, the appealant was born female, undertook several operations to uh, which were successful in achieving a desired status of non-gender. Uh, and they'd taken the Home Office, in effect, to the courts because they couldn't uh, obtain a passport with a neutral gender. Some nations around the world, it's about five, I think, will accept a gender-neutral status. The rest of the nations won't. And so they took uh, the Home Office to the courts. Uh, the fact that they couldn't be marked as gender-neutral, and they lost the case. So the government don't have to accept on passports that someone is gender-neutral. The reason for raising that a little bit is on HMRC records and submissions, the gender on the FPS has to be male or female. And uh, we get a number of inquiries, and I'm sure, sure Lou does, asking that can we actually make someone gender neutral for payroll purposes? And the reality is on tax records, we can't. A gender has to be selected male or female. And it was just interesting on the gender-neutral passport case that it was lost. Now, on two grounds, I think one was, uh, does the Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights impose an obligation on contracting states when it issues passports to respect the private lives of individuals who identify as non-gendered? And the other aspect is, that if it didn't, then is it an obligation on the Home Secretary by the Human Rights Act 1998. The conclusion of the uh, court was that it would be dismissed. So they dismissed it and said, in effect, that there is no obligation on the Home Office to have such a uh, requirement, at least at the present time. And there's no reason why that assessment of the position at the European level should not be followed at the domestic level in the application of the Human Rights Act. So they're actually um, looking at Article 14, uh, saying there is actually no obligation on the government currently to accept a gender-neutral passport or issue one, rather. 
I don't know if you've got your sound back, John, or if you've got any comment there on employment side of gender neutrality, because that's slightly different. Yeah, things are, are slightly different. You're right. In terms of, in certain respects, I found it slightly, I can understand why the decision was made. There was initial judicial review, and then it went to the Court of Appeal. And it's really focused on, on very narrow grounds. Uh, but I think it's probably fair to say that the way that the direction is going, uh, I can't see that it's a, a line that's likely to be maintained uh, at the Supreme Court. And to a certain extent, with legal decisions, if you appeal on a, or challenge on a particular ground, that's what the, the High Court, the Court of Appeal, would, would focus on. Um, but I think uh, the direction of travel is inevitably going to go one way, uh, and quite rightly, I think, uh, reflecting the, the general trend of, of these matters, Nick. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think we're seeing the same on the recruitment side of things. And I, it's, it's a topic that's always going to, you know, be a, an emotional one for people. And therefore, it's likely to see more challenges. In fact, we've already had a, a comment come in, which just says uh, from uh, Fernanda, that says exactly what a nightmare. Some people don't want to choose male or female. It seems the HMRC is not respecting the human rights that have been fully accepted everywhere else. This highlights some of the problems that both HR and payroll professionals face. I also have had a client this week that need they have. It's a very delicate matter, obviously, and you have to be very mindful of what you can do. But, I, you know, I was unable to go back and demonstrate what an RTI has to display and it has to display either male or female. But that's a difficult message to deliver as me as a payroller, but also as the employer um, who was quite literally distraught by this. And it, it isn't something that just has appears every few, you know, every few years. This is something that we face with a different employer in the weeks leading up to Christmas. So it is something I think that we have to face up and get a resolution on because it is the reality. And we have to make sure that the HR and payrollers are not on the receiving end of frustration frustrations because we're not moving with the times. Incredibly unfair if Pale are being made accountable for a decision that's completely out of their hands. John, you were about to uh, add something? Yes, I was just going to say in, in, in terms of, of this, of course, the, the sort of debate has, has moved on and I've got some experience of this because just over uh, probably 20, 25 years ago, I did one of the first transsexual cases um, in the Employment Tribunal in Liverpool. And it will show you how things have, have moved on. But um, in that case, I was acting for the, the employer. Uh, and we had the BBC camped outside the tribunal um, in Liverpool because it was a, a somewhat unusual case. But things have moved on and we've got so much more fluidity um, in, in matters that, that trying to deal with these things is difficult. Uh, and if you want to see how not to deal with it, just read uh, the uh, employment tri tribunal decision in a case where Jaguar uh, were held to have done almost everything that you could do wrong um, in dealing with these situations. But it's a, a tricky issue for, for HR. We're going to um, get the audience involved. Uh, for those that have joined, I can see our attendee list has just gone up a little bit. So for those of you who have missed the first section of this uh, PQT, don't worry, we'll send you um, the slides separately so you can pick up on the, on, the, on the aspects of furlough that we've discussed. There's also a link in the chat notes where you can find out more about the statistics if you missed it. But we're going to jump into our first poll. So I want you all to get involved if you can. Uh, it's a subject which is all about the state retirement age review. Uh, the poll is going to be, should the state pension age be reviewed? Uh, option one is, yes, it needs to increase. Option two, yes, it needs to be lowered. No, it's fine as it is, or I don't know. So 
please get involved in that poll. Put your answers down. We're going to have some commentary on those results as they come through. Uh, I'm going to let Andy Nichols lead us into um, this subject area as our resident PQT pensions expert. Um, we know the state pension age is currently 66, uh, with a rise to 67 for those born on or after April 1960, and a rise to 68 between 2044 and 2046 for those born on or after April 1977. So while waiting for those results to come in, Andy, I wonder if you could just uh, take the floor to lead us into uh, some of the results of that age review and um, to get the conversation started. Indeed, yeah. I mean, the, the last review was back in 2017 and the Pensions Act 2014 said every five years, at least no longer than five years, you should be, that the government should review the state pension age. And uh, when it was done in 2017, there was a proposal to bring forward the 68 retirement age from 2044 to 46 back to 2037-39. And that 2017 review said, but please look at it again when you come to review in five years' time, because five years' time is 2022. So now the government are now going to start to review whether or not the retirement age, well, even 67, because um, although that, that's, that's going to happen from 2028, and the review looks at things like life expectancy. And at the time, life expectancy was getting longer and longer. That information now seems, oh, actually, life expectancy isn't continuing to increase. So should, therefore, retirement age continue to increase or not? And so this review will be looking at all of that, but particularly the, the 68 age. And so there'll be a lot of government actuaries and various sort of parties which will be looking to see whether or not the retirement age should continue as planned, i.e. 67 from 2028, 68 from 2044, 2046, because it's a sort of phased in uh, thing, or whether it shouldn't be increased as, as soon or maybe not even to 68. So the whole thing is under review. That is going to take some time, though. It's going to take about a year or so. So sort of May 2023 is when the results have to be uh, published, um, hopefully before then. So we wait to see if the retirement age will follow the current plan or whether it will alter. Um, well, and we've had um, a quick comment come in from Beth that says, will the, um, will the assessment take into account the fact that COVID has potentially brought the life expectancy down in that short-term impact? I would think so, because the, the whole, I mean, life expectancy is, is a well-known science, within, for instance, within the pensions industry, especially for defined benefit schemes, which need to know how much money needs to be in the pension scheme in order to, pay, to ensure there's enough money in the scheme to pay out the very last dependent of, of the members of that scheme. So that life expectancy concept is, is quite well known, and the government have actually departments and everything else. So there'll be a lot of feedback, and the DUP will ask for information from specialist people, you know, professionals who understand all this. So, yeah, COVID has brought it into sharp factor, I would have thought, personally. Um, yeah. that, you know, you can't life expectancy, and also it's shown that life expectancy isn't increasing as it was. You know, it's just, it's gradual, if anything, now, rather than years and years being added. Um, we've got to wait and see, really, see what the impact is. And what will the potential impacts then be for, for payroll? Obviously, at the moment, state pension age, uh, when you get to state pension age, you don't pay national insurance as an individual. You do as an employer. Um, there's obviously the health and social care that will, may or may not make a difference to that. Things like the nitty-gritty bit changes, like automatic enrolment, you get automatic enrolled between 22 and state pension age. Well, if state pension age 
doesn't increase or or whenever that is, whatever's decided, that's when automatic roaming will stop being automatic. It has the impact on national insurance and pensions, and no doubt, I think Simon and Lou may have other thoughts, yeah. Well, so before we jump into those thoughts, I'd like to come to both Leo and Simon on that. Let's have a look at those poll results and see what the uh, the audience are thinking at the moment. If we can get those back. Are they ready for us, Hannah, at all? Yes, they are. Just bring them up now. And perhaps I can then uh, pass this over to start with yourself, Lou, some commentary on what your thoughts are on these results. It looks like, yes, it should be lowered as the, uh, is the winner with 55%. Definitely. I like how everybody's thinking. I do think. Um, I suppose from my point of view, I'm a woman in, who is in her 50s. And whenever I started out working, to me, I always looked forward to being retired at 50. That was always the big end goal. And then as I've got older, everything's been extended to I will be 67 when I retire. And you have to when I look at the work that I'm doing now with payroll and the amount of uh, brain activity, the multitasking, even over the last two years, it, it does it does wear you down. And you think, what will I be like a payroll professional in, in two, in, by the time I'm 67? So I do think it's something that they have to consider when you look at COVID and what it has done to the population. And you look at some of the feedback from, exa- for example, from long COVID, how will this impact our population and do the government need to rethink as part of that what way we'll be moving forward with pension ages what about yourself simon what are your thoughts i was thinking that 19 sounds a good age was initial uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but um i guess there's an element of affordability but uh, i'm i'm kind of hitting 60 this year so um, yeah, I, I'm a bit disappointed it's gone up because potentially I'm going to work for another seven years. Saying that, sometimes there's an element of uh, if I didn't work, what would I do? So in in some ways, I think there's a little bit of a modern culture to be able to retire a little, but actually carry on doing something a little as well. If anyone was able, if we can go back to the slide panel, if anyone was able to take a sneak peek to the right of uh, Simon's uh, office, you might get an inclination of what he might be doing, because he's a bit of a Lego and train aficionado, as I've just discovered. But uh, I guess it doesn't give you necessarily the same fulfilment as uh, as, as the work-type uh, payroll piece that obviously you're so expert in, but uh, it's all impressive nonetheless. Well, a lot of that I've got to blame on COVID and uh, nights not being able to go out or meet people. But fortunately, we can now. Absolutely right. First of all, so we have one question, actually, before we jump into the next section, which is SSP, which I know there's a few questions already flying in about this. It's going to be a hot topic. Um, it just comes back to, from um, Sally Alderman and Simon. It relates to the uh, first, uh, the um, uh, elements of the pace that you mentioned earlier. She just said, Simon mentioned the codes to set up payslip messages. Could these be shared either on the notes for this call or could you send it out to all clients or, or to everyone at the end of this uh, this conversation? So either if you can put it into the chat or if we can follow up with that, that would yeah. be fantastic. Okay. From an SC Works user aspect, uh, there'll be a, a note added to TrustWorks and also to the website and you'll receive it with the software delivery, which will occur in mid-February. So when we give all the information about the new change, uh, the instruction on how to apply the message, if you wish, or an alternate will be given within that. Is that okay? So that's probably within the next four weeks in reality. But if you want to, just email me and I'll send it to you. Yeah, simon.parsons.com. Hopefully that helps you there, there Sally. Uh, great. So let's jump in then to a, 
always a, uh, a good conversation topic, which is statutory sick pay. Uh, we're going into 2022. What are the main changes to SSP rules? I'll leave the conversation with you, Simon, if we can. Okay. I think this is talking about the changes that have probably come in, and it relates probably to the question we had earlier. But as of um, April, the rate will go up slightly. Don't have it to hand. Um, I can go and find that in a second and probably put that in the chat if it will let me or let you know. But the changes were one on the, the Saturday sick pay rebate scheme has been reopened. So that um, is available for anybody that's on leave with COVID now for isolation or because they have COVID. Uh, and we've already briefly talked about the 28-day self-certification rights that people have. Uh, if the employer is UK-based, they employ fewer than 250 employees as of the 30th of November 2021. They had a PAYE payroll system as of the 30th of November 2021, and they've already paid their employees COVID-related SSP. Then there's a refresh of being able to claim back two weeks SSP again. That scheme closed last year. It's now open again, but it naturally expires, and it naturally expires on the 24th of March uh, 2022 at midnight because the COVID measures, emergency measures, all retire at that point. They all fall away and are no longer applicable including the day one right to SSP for COVID-related absence. They all end. So this reclaim does. But there's a caveat here is you must make the claim by that deadline. And so that's sometimes challenging, isn't it? As payroll professionals, we find out someone's sick two or three weeks later. So if they're off with COVID-related absence in mid-March and you don't know about it before... Uh, I don't know, the end of March, you're too late. So because you have to make that claim by that uh, COVID law expiration point. So just to make you aware, two weeks SSP for COVID-related illness for employers who aren't uh, just setting up new companies and scamming the government, so they already existed, um, is applicable now again. Uh, the other aspect, I guess, was uh, the Social Security, uh, the statutory sick pay medical evidence regulations 2021, which we heard about later, is the fact that between the 17th of December 2021 and the 26th of January 2021, any pre-existing sickness that's ongoing or any new sickness, including up to the 26th of January, the employee can provide you with a SC2, employee self-certification, and that's as good as a doctor's note. They don't need to give you a doctor's note. And the SSP yeah. rate for 22-23 is 99.35. And also just to note that there are um, strict compliance measures that the government has talked about and that employers must keep records of their statutory sick pay that they've paid and want to claim back from HMRC. The employers have to keep the following years, following three years records and the date they received the payment for their claim, the dates the employee was off sick, 
their qualifying days and the reason that they were off due to COVID and the employee's national insurance, that all has to be documented and kept for the next three years in case HMRC come back and ask um, to check compliance. Yeah. The claim uh, facility on the HMRC site is not yet available. It's meant to be imminent. They said mid-January. It's different to the previous. So hopefully you can make your claims soon. And of course, those go back to uh, the date we mentioned earlier. Excellent. And interesting, it says, can employers pay less sick pay to unvaccinated staff? This is obviously, a, if anyone listens to talk sport, or sorry, talk radio or any other talk radio, LBC or whatever it might be, hot topic this. But um, yeah, who would like to, I know so I'll probably come to you as well, John, on, on some of the things maybe you're seeing on the employment side. But at the moment, can employers pay less sick pay to unvaccinated staff, Simon? Well, uh, well should I take um, a couple Yeah, John, take it away. Yeah, I, I, it, uh, I, I wouldn't be an internationally renowned employment lawyer without starting this by, by using the words, it depends. Uh, uh, and it does to a degree, possibly if you're an international tennis star. But the, the general rule is, it, is that you can't withhold SSP because someone is unvaccinated if they have contracted COVID. Uh, the essence of SSP is it, it doesn't really distinguish between the, the reason for the illness and, and why it is. So on, on that front, if you've got COVID, you, you're certainly entitled to, to SSP. And from a contractual perspective, uh, I think most of the occupational schemes which are seen in the way that they're framed aren't going to make those type of distinctions either. So if you've got it, it it's likely that whatever stick pay you're entitled to, you're still going to be um, entitled to. Um, there are some tweaks to that. Um, some occupational schemes are, are defined as being discretionary. So it gives you some potential flex to only be paying statutory rather than occupational. But it does come with some risks uh, around that from a discrimination point of view. Um, and that can bite in a number of different ways. So, for example, if you've got uh, people who are disabled uh, and they are uh, employees and somewhat compromised uh, immune systems. They may not be vaccinated for good reasons. From a pregnancy and maternity point of view, uh, there's some women who are concerned uh, about being vaccinated. Um, and so there are various different elements of discrimination, be it religion, belief or, or race. Uh, which may cause some potential HR challenges from a discrimination point of view if you decide that you are not going to continue to pay what you would ordinarily pay um, in terms of occupational sick pay. Having said that, there is a, a movement. I wouldn't say it's particularly widespread at the moment uh, for employers to say, well, if you're self-isolating uh, and you're unvaccinated, uh, then you are not going to get occupational sick pay. But uh, I think it's been in the news and fairly well publicised that uh, that is the view which um, IKEA have taken uh, in respect of that. And also very recently, Wessex Water have taken the same view. So there's a, a move towards it, but it isn't a significant move that, that we're seeing uh, with clients doing that at the moment. So, yes, there's potential to do it, but it comes with uh, I think some, some, I wouldn't say necessarily huge red flags, but it requires some thought if you are going to do it and deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis because people may have good and legitimate reasons 
why it is that they are not vaccinated. Yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. Actually, we've had a question which, not, to be honest, it's not necessarily directly related, but relevant nonetheless. I'm, I'm sure Simon or Luke could help me with this question. It says, one of my client's employees is having to self-isolate because she's been in contact with another employee who has tested positive for COVID. She's unvaccinated and is insisting on self-isolating for 10 days. We thought the isolation period had been reduced to seven days. So two questions, really. Is she eligible for COVID SSP and do we pay for 10 days, as she's insisting upon, or for seven days? Yeah, and it might be in a little bit of a question for John, to the extent that she can complete an SC2 for any time up to 28 days. Um, how valid that is, and if you want to challenge that, I don't know. You're not going to get a doctor to give you anything for under 28 days for the time being. So you pretty much, I'm suggesting, probably have to accept the self-certification they give you. Any thoughts there, John, from that sort of legalistic point of um, oh, people? I think that's right. Given you've got a potential self-cert for 28 days, then trying to go behind that is going to be problematic. And to be quite frank, it's probably going to create more issues uh, than it solves, uh, I think is my view. Okay. I think okay. it is con causing a lot of concern around employers that actually now people can have got a license to just sign themselves off for 28 days. Well, that, that, yeah. that, that's true. But to be quite frank, in my experience, the GPs are so busy that I'd like to say that there's a, a, an in-depth, you know, half an hour assessment of, of how long someone needs to be signed off on. But to, to be quite frank, often it's an element of someone going to the doctor and indicating how long they wish to be signed off for. Um, so I'm not sure it makes a great deal of difference in practice in certain respects. I mean, it sounds like in this particular um, instance, the actual individual who is just self-isolating, they actually they haven't been, been yeah. diagnosed with COVID necessarily. So it makes it yeah, harder. There is, a change, there is a change from Monday, uh, Nick, and that's the self-isolation time frame will drop to five days, uh, at okay. least for England. Okay, great. Uh, second question we've had here, actually, before I jump into this, uh, Natalie's just mentioned, sorry, uh, did you say the SSP for day one C19 related absence will come to an end? It will. So the emergency COVID legislation naturally expires at midnight on the 24th of March. So the day one right, uh, in other words, you don't have to have three waiting days, uh, will also expire at that point in time. So there is currently still the four-day PIW as a minimum requirement, but that PIW can be made or period of incapacity for work can be any days. In fact, it is any days, including weekends and holiday dates. Um, the qualifying day one right uh, is there for COVID-related, but only until the 24th of March, unless the government introduced new emergency measures or extend, because they could extend, but if they do nothing, it will end. Okay, great. And last question, uh, more related to maternity pay than sickness pay, but I'll, I'll ask it here. We have an employee who isn't returning after maternity leave and so has to pay her occupational maternity pay. HMRC have advised us this should be the net amount, but the issue I have is that she received her OMP and SMP together most months, so it's hard to tell what the net amount of OMP would be. Can you advise? Yes, do you want to privately engage me under AML law? And I can, uh, no, I'm being a bit facetious there. Potentially uh, so, but I think there's an element of seeing what is the OMP amount 
and dealing with that separately in a view of how that would periodically amount and on the prevailing rate and the national insurance bandings. It's slightly complicated. You know, I think there's an element of can I answer that over a webinar such as this? The answer is probably no, but can it be done? It certainly can. But again, it's about going back and if the system can't recalculate, it's about recalculating each period to understand what would have been paid and working out the difference. So it isn't, you haven't got a quick fix. There is manual work involved if your system doesn't do it for you. Well, I'm not going to point it uh, that way, isn't it, to Andy, actually, because there are implications elsewhere, because, of course, you'll have had to have continued paying the employer national insurance based on full pay, but the employee would have contributed as well based on the reduced pay. So there may be an implication in relation to the pension contributions. Yeah, indeed, there will be, obviously, because what it's saying is that the, the money needs to be repaid. So, therefore, the pension, you'd have to, in effect, rejig everything. So, the employer will still be paying. The employer still needs to pay based on, you know, the salary that would have been in place prior to return to leave. And the person's still in return to leave, which is just they're not returning, isn't it? Which is why the, the money wants to be repaid. Yeah. Um, the occupational money wants to be repaid. So, if it's salary sacrifice and you're no longer paying occupational return to pay, and you were using occupational maternity pay to recover the salary sacrifice amount from the individual, and the only thing now you're paying is SMP, well, you won't be able to recover the SMP. So you as an employer will need to pay the full employer contribution, a normal contribution amount, plus the the salary sacrifice value. Um, so that that there will be a rejig in terms of pension. But Lou's probably right. In effect, if, if, you're, if you're going to redo the payroll for all the pay periods that that person has been on maternity leave, then you're resetting it and you would therefore logically realise that and, and do the correct calculations based on what is due to be paid now. Yeah, sounds like a complex question. Do you keep them coming in? This is good. This is good. So I'm going to jump into a question mm. I'm sure will, uh, will be an interesting one to debate, which is to pay or not to pay. That is the question in relation to the additional holiday pay uh, that's coming in as a result of the Platinum Jubilee. So I'm going to jump to a poll for this one. Uh, we've got a few options in here, and that is uh, related to are you going to be paying an additional day's holiday due to the Platinum Jubilee? So the first answer is no, we don't pay public holidays. No, we use the statutory 28 days. No, we only named, uh, only pay named public holidays. Or yes, we are paying the extra day. And yes, we are increasing the leave entitlement by one day. So please do answer that. Really, really interesting, this one. Very much a one-off, of course. So uh, really interesting to get your results. We'll comment on those as they come back. But let's dive into this. We've got the new bank holiday set for I believe it's Friday, the 3rd of June, 2022. So the nation can indeed celebrate the Platinum Jubilee. But how do we manage this from a payroll perspective? And what is the public holiday pay and entitlement? So, Simon, I know this is a subject that you wanted to bring into PQT today. So let's, let's uh, kick off with you and uh, let's get your thoughts. Yeah, so the 3rd of June is an extra. So it's a ninth public holiday in 2022. So how does that impact um, holiday? And there's been a lot of social media discussion about this. And the answer is a little bit, um, as John would say, and uh, I and will be interested to hear what John says, actually. But I think the answer is it depends. 
So is the 29 days of statutory holiday due in 2022? I think I'd suggest the answer is no. The, the statutory holiday requirement is four weeks under EU elements of Regulation 13, and an additional 1.6 weeks under Regulation 13A. And they're not designated to cover public holidays, because the other angle is actually there is no right to either leave or holiday pay for a, stat, a public holiday. They don't have to be paid at all. However, some may have contract terms which make them payable. But some contracts I've seen will say and will pay Easter, Christmas, Boxing Day, and things like that. But they don't mention August Bank Holiday, May Bank Holiday, May Day. They just mention Easter and Christmas. So not all PLUS contracts actually specify all public holidays. They only supply, uh, imply some. But there are some contracts that will say, here's your holiday entitlement, and we pay public holidays on top. And so there's an element of answers are no, yes, and maybe, or as John would say, it depends. So, John, yeah, what are you seeing on this? Yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's, it's right. It's, it's really a, a contractual issue rather than anything else in determining what the level of, of holiday will be. Uh, I have to say, for, for most of the contracts, uh, that we see and generally we, we draft, uh, what we put in is to say that they're entitled to the 5.6 weeks, uh, and that would be inclusive of bank holidays rather than having a just a, a standard lesser rate of holidays with the bank holidays on top. Um, so I think that's the most of the contracts that we see uh, are of that variety. Um, so it really depends if you've got something which says uh, you're entitled to, to holiday plus all bank holidays on top, you know, you may be doing slightly better off when you get that extra day. Uh, but as I say, most of the contracts we see, it sets a cap and the bank holidays are included within that. Let's bring back those poll results then before we find out more about, you know, whether it's capture on 13 and everything else. I'm interested what people are thinking about this. So nice to see. This, this would certainly be the take I would take as an employer and certainly something that we will be doing at JJ, which is paying for the extra day. Nice to see that 51% of people will be doing the same and 36 are increasing leave entitlement one day, which is, which is really positive things to see. Just a small percentage. But what, uh, Lou, would you like to make some commentary on, on these results? Are they, are they as you expected? I mean, they are really, um, but I suppose it comes down to different employers have different contracts and apply things in different ways. What I will say is in Northern Ireland, we are super lucky because we actually have 11 bank holidays. So nice. usually we have 10. So we have an extra one as well. So there's definitely no complaints from me. But yes, I mean, in a time off, we want to, to lift the country's spirits an extra day. Seems very fair. And actually, from a recruitment standpoint, the, 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 the one incentive that people love over anything else and over financial incentive is, is, is holiday. It, it, it incentivizes more than anything else. So I think that one day will absolutely help lift the nation at a time of celebration. So I think it's, um, it's good that, you know, a high percentage here are going to be paying that extra day. I've got on the, uh, on the slide here, will it be captured by Regulation 13A? I'll be honest, uh, this goes over my head, uh, Simon, as to what Regulation 13A is. You may have just explained it slightly, but one of I can come back yeah. to this point just to make sure we've answered this part of the slide. 
Yes. So regulation 13A of the working time regulations is the extension of UK holiday above the European entitlement. The European entitlement is four weeks. And, and this is where it gets confusing because some will say, well, that's the bank holiday bit. Well, actually, it isn't because it doesn't mention public or bank holidays at all, but it's the equivalent of. So it adds an extra eight, eight days entitlement to the 20 that come under the European four weeks. Or if you don't work five days a week, six days or seven days a week, it uh, is a prorate. Well, it's not a proration. It's a multiple of the 5.6 weeks in total. So it could be less. So not everyone will get eight days. They may get three-fifths of eight days if they only work three days a week. And those days can be taken any day. They don't have to be taken on a bank holiday. So that's covered by Regulation 13A of the Working Time Regulations, which set out the statutory minimum holiday pay entitlement. And it's an area of law where I think a lot of player employers get mistakes and errors in where it goes because they don't work out the proportion right. They don't understand the entitlement for zero hours workers, temporary workers, uh, part-time workers, because pretty much everyone's entitled to 5.6 weeks as a minimum. I was going to ask John a cheeky question, uh, and it may all have changed these days because I'm thinking in the past, uh, in the legal uh, world, certainly as I knew it, where my wife worked as a legal secretary, etc., you used to get the Queen's birthday off as well. Does that still happen? I, I don't think so in terms of getting the Queen's birthday off. But, but look, you know, prior to 1998, there wasn't actually any statutory entitlement to holiday at all. So it's, uh, sure. it's all one way or another. Great, fantastic. Well, I'm going to jump into our third poll. It's our final poll of the day. It's something about that I'm certainly experiencing in a world of recruitment. It relates to the uh, the great resignation. Uh, the question is, has your company been affected by mass resignations? Uh, have you lost a lot of staff recently? It doesn't necessarily have to be within the payroll function, of course. This could be the employees that are on your payroll. Uh, we've lost some staff. We haven't been affected, or it's just you here. So we're really interested to see these results. Certainly from my perspective, uh, running a payroll recruitment business, we have seen a huge, huge number of people resigning and changing jobs. In fact, we're seeing a threefold increase on previous years in terms of the number of people changing positions and the number of employers that are hiring. So we're certainly seeing a huge impact on the market at the minute. There's a number of things that are driving that, uh, which I'd love to talk through because it's a very, very busy time in the world of recruitment. So I'll be really fascinated to uh, to see these results. Before I jump into some of the reasons why I think uh, we are seeing such a great resignation, and there are there are um, some social posts out there that doesn't believe this is happening, uh, I would disagree with those. I would love to hear what the panel think. I'll start with yourself, Andy. Have you seen uh, any impacts of this great resignation uh, in, in, in your world of work? Not me. No, I haven't personally. I guess working from home is, is less of a thing. In fact, if anything, the regulator has increased the number of people uh, that's working for us on the basis that um, we've taken in-house various things that were outsourced. Obviously, there's been uh, people would have transferred along with that. Um, but I have, like you, read in the press about, you know, pay increases to retain jobs. You, you think about the lorries and things like that, drivers. But on a personal level, I would say this is probably true that people have reevaluated what they're doing in life. How about yourself, Lewis? EY, obviously big, big hires, uh, always running uh, reports on these things and they're very heavily on the graduate recruitment programs as well. Have you, have you seen much impact of this great resignation? 
I haven't seen it outside of my team, but you just have to look at social media, you know, LinkedIn in particular, where even me, I'm advertising for positions in my yeah. team, come and work for me, because I have seen um, a team that um, we had had on board for a, a number of years. Now we're facing, there are, particularly in Belfast, obviously I can't speak about the rest of GB, but in Belfast and Northern Ireland, we have so many payroll providers who are looking to recruit, and it is a very buoyant market at the moment. Um, yes, there is salary expectations, but something that you'd said, earlier Nick people aren't just interested in the salary it's about the benefits yeah. that go along I'm not I'm not just merely promoting EY we are lucky we do have a hybrid working model where we have um, only two days in the office and the option to be three days at home which can also make a big difference and in particular in Belfast we are still working from home because the COVID restrictions are back that work from home when you can so I have been impacted by this and I can see it on social media and including Facebook people moving about and um, I think people need to be mindful of the grass is not always greener. I, I don't say that lightly. People think a better, a higher salary equates to more happiness and a better job, and that's not necessarily the case. Very often, it, it can be an illusion of what you're heading to. I couldn't agree more. I think before you put that resignation in, I'd always recommend doing a positive and negative lists of things you like and dislike, because often you move for money and forget just how great your manager is, for example. And most people leave for reasons that aren't actually associated to financial benefit. They'll move because they don't get on with the manager or they want a better work-life balance, whatever it might be. Um, interestingly, John, um, I saw a BBC report out this week where the salaries for graduate lawyers it's gone up to almost 150,000 in some cases. They try and get the, the new people in the door. So certainly seeing some increases uh, in salaries in the, in the legal sector in, in London. But from my perspective, just to give some overview of what we're seeing in the market, I think a lot of this has been driven by media. I think because everyone's seeing this great resignation, people are being concerned that they're being left behind if they don't resign or don't reevaluate where they are in work. So I think some of this has been perpetuated by the media message on its own. I think also it, it's been driven by a lot of businesses recruiting heavily as a result of things that are impacted upon the pandemic. So this digital transformation, maybe they made too many people redundant during the pandemic, whatever it might be, there's a lot of businesses now that are also growing at rates that were unexpected pre-pandemic, which has resulted in a number of new, new, new roles coming available. And obviously, that, as a result of that, a lot more movement in the market. It's a bit of a, a perfect storm. You've got New Year resolutions as well. People deciding over New Year they want to change positions because the grass is greener and they've had enough. New opportunities by new businesses expanding or going through transformations. A lot of redundancies, as I say, during furlough. Unexpected growth and all those things have come together to, to essentially bring a market right now in recruitment sector in particular that we have never, ever seen before. The month of January also showed on average new salaries being 4.9% higher than they were seen in January last, this time last year, like for like. Uh, that was a study by one of the larger recruitment businesses, uh, international recruitment businesses that gave that study out earlier this week. So that's another reason people are looking to make a shift because there are salary increases uh, available as people try and fight for top talent. But interestingly, I'd love to know what, uh, what you're seeing in the market. John, I don't know if, you've, if, you, if this is impacting you from an employment standpoint as well, with people changing positions. What's your view? Well, what, what, what it is, for, from our, it's certainly that in the legal market, it's very hot uh, at the moment. And I think there are probably one or two of my colleagues with a similar vintage to me 
uh, who are thinking that maybe they'll uh, change their name by default, get a facelift, uh, and apply for one of those jobs on 150,000 a year. Yeah. So it's certainly very, very hot at the moment. But I think there's a few things that are driving it. I think one of the things is is there was an element, certainly at the early stages of the, the pandemic, where for a lot of people it was a better the devil you know, uh, and the recruitment market wasn't in the same state it is now. So I think there's an element of lag um, in terms of, of that. Um, I think also there's an element of, of people who are perhaps slightly burnt out by things. And uh, I think further, I'm from the, obviously the employment law perspective, but I think further binds us in pain. Uh, and I certainly remember uh, having one evening where I started at six in the morning and working at midnight, and I'd had a, 135 emails since half past 10 with all those treasury directions that came out on a Friday. So I think that's, that's something which is driving it uh, as well. And also, to a certain extent, there's something that we're thinking about internally, that with everyone working from home, all of those ties that you had in the workplace that keeps you there, it's the friends that you make, sort of going out for a drink on a Friday night, those sort of bonds that you get are slightly potentially loosening when people are largely working from home. So it requires some thought from an organisational perspective as to how you deal with that and engage with your, your workforce. I think so. Yes, so in the, the legal world, it's certainly very hot at the moment in terms of, of people leaving and coming and going. I think it's a great point you just made there as well, John, because and Lou mentioned it as well about the working from home, which has a huge impact on what's driving this great resignation. Companies where you were working from home and now asking for people to come back. And of course, employees have, have found new habits. We were working from home for so long that those habits have changed and they're not prepared to go back. And there are other companies taking advantage uh, and, and, and they have every right to do so by saying, well, come work for us and you can work from home. And it's um, certainly employees. It's an employee market at the moment in terms of recruitment and they're able to be more selective on their own requirements and companies kind of have to follow suit if they want to get the top talent and it's, it's been a massive massive shift in the world of recruitment um, with the way that people are set up to work now and actually the companies that are insistent on five days in the office are finding it harder than ever to recruit talent for that reason there are of course people that still prefer to be in the office certainly in recruitment and sales people like being in the office it's, it's a different environment but there's more choice available to those that want something different and that's, it's certainly been a, a new dynamic change yeah, I think that's right. And it's probably fair to say that there are one or two corporate psychopaths in, in the legal world, just as there are in, in any other sector as well. And there's an element there of, of if you're working from home, where you think, well, maybe I'll take that extra five grand or 10 grand or whatever it is, because I'm not going to have to deal with those people every day. So it's just those ties are, are loosening to an extent, I think, and requires careful thought from a, a sort of cultural perspective as to how organisations yeah. deal with that. So what are the implications then for payroll, Simon? You know, we've got this is going to implicate on holiday pay, potential unlawful deductions. I may come back to you on that, John, for people moving. There's always implications for starters and leavers. What are some of the things we need to be considering from a payroll perspective, Simon? Well, I'll focus on one of my uh, hobby topics, which is holiday pay. And if we go back to the fact that there have been a lot of people furloughed over this past year, they may have actually carried forward a uh, hefty holiday entitlement into the current year because that can be carried forward two years. If they leave, the employer is obliged to pay all outstanding holiday they have at termination of employment. And that's a two-way termination, isn't it? That's whether you resign or, or whether you've uh, been pushed out. Uh, as uh, Potentially, that could be a payment in lieu 
and it's the only time you can receive a payment in lieu for holiday is when you leave. So if you've got 28 days from last year and 28 days for this year or, or a proportion of it, all those days will be due payment on leaving. So that's one of the implications. Uh, the unlawful deduction from pay is uh, we see a lot on social media about uh, repayment, for example, repayment of SMP, OMP, uh, maybe an error of deductions, training, uniform, etc. There are multiple implications under potentials of national minimum wage law, although there are exceptions for the employer recovering certain costs. But I think those have to be outlined in the original contract. You can't just make up values for recovery and decide that the uh, T-shirt you gave them was worth £500. I think you'd have had to declare the value of those sorts of things already and already have contract positions in place for that recovery. And again, there may be some things, but uh, it's an interesting time, isn't it? There are questions being asked all the time about, I'm not going back. I'm not working my notice. They're refusing my holiday, which I've already booked and stuff like that. So uh, interesting times. And what are you seeing here then, John? You know, what are the implications for someone who refuses to work their notice or maybe they've taken a bonus and they've decided to go and refusing to pay it back? Well, in, in terms of, of notice, it's, it's slightly loaded in the employee's favour because if you're an employer and, uh, you know, someone is, is leaving uh, and you don't give them pay in lieu of notice, for example, that, that's a, a clear contractual breach. Uh, and if they've got eight weeks' notice, pretty much you're going to owe them eight weeks' pay. Um, it's not quite a level playing field because on the other way round, if an employee is required to give you eight weeks' notice uh, and they just walk out, that may be a breach of contract, but what's your loss as an employer? Because you don't have to pay them for that period. They're supposed to be working and they just walk out. They don't get paid. So technically, you can bring a breach of contract claim, and it, it may fly on the basis that if you've got to pay some recruitment fees to bring someone in, um, you could potentially claim that by way of a contractual claim against the employee. But generally, if employees just walk out, especially if they've got reasonably short notice periods, uh, generally, it, it, the candle isn't worth the game in pursuing them. Um, so it's a, it's a tricky issue if people just walk out in terms of what you can do. What are the implications from a referencing standpoint? If someone refuses to work their notice and walk out, are you, as an employer, you know, are you able to take a reference, you know, the way that you, you reference that employee as a result? Could you mention that in a reference or would that put you on dodgy ground? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you could do. It's, it, the, the world of references have, have changed over the last 25 years. 25 years ago, people would generally say what they thought. Oh, um, there's been a, a kind of move away from that to what I might term sort of old school American style references where you just confirm dates of employment, job title and that type of thing. And just because people don't want to be saying something that may come back to bite them, uh, to a certain extent, it, it, we don't see that many references that are given which actually say anything at all these days. It's better than really, you know sometimes if you get a reference that's too glowing, it makes you question it more than you should because you think, you know, sorry Lou, you're about to... Uh, no, because to me, um, I haven't worked in the HR for five years, many years ago, and moving 
into where I am now in payroll. I, you know, is there any value to references at the end of the day in reality? Are you really going to give somebody's name and address that's going to give you a poor reference? The reality is the chances are very, very slim. But again, in modern day working, it is more or less you get confirmed start and end dates and you get confirmation of job title and nothing else can be provided. One thing I will add, which is worth bearing in mind if you are employing staff, particularly within your payroll department, this will depend on your insurance providers. Uh, obviously, being in recruitment, this is something that we need to be aware of as well. If you're employing staff and decide not to take references because you don't value them, as you say, you just get dates and, and, and titles and nothing else, you may find that that employee goes and fiddles a little bit that you won't be covered by an insurance provider if you fail to take references on employment. So do check your insurance provider information. If you're not a believer in references and decide not to take them for that reason, it may well come and bite you later. So there is a, you know, there is still a value in taking them, even if it's just to safeguard your insurances from foul play later on. Sorry, John, I thought I got the sense you're about to come in there. No, 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 that's fine. Excellent. We've got obviously a, a tentative subject because we're getting, I think, five or six questions have come in thick and fast. We've got six or seven minutes to try and rack through these if we can. So I'm going to try and get through all of them to finish this January PQT. Thank you, everyone, for sending in these questions. Loving the uh, the input. I'm going to start with Michelle's, which is, and they're not necessarily related now to the Great Resignation, so I'm going to go through these one by one. First question for Michelle. If you work a bank holiday, are you entitled to be paid the bank holiday at an enhanced rate and also due a day? off in lieu. It's, it comes back to the contractual issue again, Nick, yeah. um, in terms yeah. of that, there's, there's the contract that regulates it. So the, there's no statutory right to enhance pay. There's no statutory right to be paid for a public holiday. Um, however, if that denies you a standard holiday uh, day from your 28-day entitlement, the 28 days actually isn't fixed at public holidays. Would that be fair to say? So they would have to give you that uh, day somewhere else, uh, and they couldn't pay you for it either. If you're still employed, if you left good, but if you're employed, they can't pay you. So they've got to allow you to take the 28 days sometime, but they don't have to be public holidays. And presumably, contractually here, John, if you, in your contract, it says you get paid bank holiday specifically at an enhanced rate, then that ninth day would be paid at an enhanced rate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So same as same as overtime, you know, yeah. you, you can have overtime at a standard rate, you can have an enhanced rate. It's whatever the contract sets out of the, the appropriate rates for, for the particular overtime or holiday or, or whatever it is. Yeah. A uh, question coming in. I'm going to answer this one. It comes in from Valerie. It says, do you believe that working from home trend will continue? Absolutely. I every, Pretty much every single client we take now uh, for new positions will offer some kind of hybrid working. Do I believe the trend will continue in terms of it being um, exclusively from home? No, it's still definitely a hybrid working format, which is the most popular between employers um, by, by some margin, really. It's probably about the same, same amount of employers will insist you in the office as they will offer you the, the full-time work from home. So hybrid tends to be the way forward. I think that's been the biggest cultural shift that we've seen in the world of employment as a result of the pandemic, and I cannot see that changing. Um, for the for the instance, if anyone on the panel disagrees with that, there's a few questions I'm going to jump through. Um, question here again, it's coming in, or commentary, should I say. An issue, another issue is COVID, uh, regarding COVID, is employees have moved abroad and are now working remotely. How will the landscape change regarding remote working in that element? I think from my side, it's been twofold because a lot of people post-Brexit as well have actually 
gone away. So if you're in logistics, for example, it's almost impossible to recruit because uh, a lot of these uh, people they used to hire are no longer in the UK and you can't do those roles remotely uh, if you're a lawyer driver, for example. Um, so I think it very much depends. In the world of payroll, yes, you can deliver payrolls remotely if you've got access to the right equipment, but it still comes down to training. And I still always say there's an element of being near your team can be useful for many, many other reasons. So we haven't seen a huge trend of employers um, from a recruitment perspective taking or accepting employees that are working abroad at the moment for UK-based payroll positions. That may change. It hasn't yet in terms of what we've been seeing. So, so lots of finding that actually their UK-based employees now aren't and they've exceeded the residency status in the nation that they're probably in. That then brings into, I don't think there's any problems with the employment, that brings into problems with the uh, tax and social yeah. insurance responsibilities of the employer in the nation of where they are residing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I do think also it, it points more towards the outcome-based management style as well now. People are managing based on outcomes, uh, which does mean you can work in more remote locations, providing you're following that process. Um, what happens with office equipment, such as desks and chairs, that have been provided to colleagues to work from home? Uh, we provide a catalogue of these to new colleagues for them to order when they first start, and I'm concerned about what happens uh, and what needs to be reported when they leave. If we're talking about benefit terms-wise, very little, and this is where Sam's a specialist, isn't it, on, uh, and unfortunately unable to be with us here. But we'll get some uh, references to information, and there's a dependency on who's bought in, and whether it's refunded or whether it's allocated by the employer. So there are implications for transfer of assets, but if it was a reimbursement, etc then it's a different uh, situation and equally what is the value of it so you may actually find that the value of the equipment or it might cost some money to start with has uh, shrunk in value drastically because things don't keep their value very long um very quickly, John, a quick question for you, because I'm not sure if I've, my knowledge is correct here, but I've got a, someone's made a comment to say some large firms, accountancy firms specifically here, don't provide references after six years. My understanding is if uh, an employer has an obligation to provide a reference if requested, is that, is that not the case? Are you able to just make a statement to say we don't give references after six years? Yeah, yeah well, I, I don't think there's necessarily an, an obligation uh, strictly on an employer to provide any reference at all. Uh, although, of course, there are some variations of that in regulated sectors, uh, but there is. Uh, but generally, there's not a, a legal obligation which is laid out in the statute or, or otherwise to provide a reference. Okay. And last but not least, as we finish this PQT for January very quickly, with a question on people living in Spain and working for us in the UK, where do we go to advice on how to operate payroll correctly in relation to tax, NNI, etc.? Apart from PQT, of course. Okay, well, there's an area of HMRC which will tell you, but the, again, it depends on residency status. If they're a UK tax resident, they're obligated to pay UK tax and national insurance. But if they're now a, a Spanish tax resident, you're probably obligated to operate Spanish tax and social insurance. And uh, to get information on that, you'd need to go to the Spanish authorities. But in relation to the UK obligation, I think the answer is going to be you treat them the same as everybody else you employ in England if they're a tax resident in England or United Kingdom, I should say. If they're not a tax resident in the United Kingdom and they're not here, then there is absolutely no obligation to do anything in the United Kingdom. But there will be where they're resident. 
I mean, that seems a bit of a convoluted answer, that there's an element of tax resident is key. If they're a UK tax resident living in Spain, you operate UK tax. Sounds like it could be a good question for future PQT to explore as we go more globally on remote working. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of our amazing panel, Andy, Lou, John and Simon, for joining us today for their wisdom. Thank you all of you for joining us on PQT again for a wonderful session. The next one is going to be in February. The link is on your screen. So please do go to sdworks.co.uk forward slash PQT to sign up for the next PQT. And I look forward to welcoming you all again in February. And uh, yeah, thanks again. See you all soon. Thank you so much for tuning into the payroll podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.